The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, Q&A edition for this week. We've got uh, a solo show. This is uh, Chris. Jim's not with us. He's still uh, uh, out of state. He finished going through the uh, Ed Slot Advisor Training Program. Uh, happens twice a year. And uh, he hasn't quite made it back to good old Colorado for us to uh, record together, so... Today I thought I'd get a little caught up on our big pool of uh, Social Security questions. Um, might have a little... Uh, actually, there's one issue I'm going to deal with right up front because um, it relates to a question we had last week. We kind of left something open last week because we weren't sure about something that uh, had come up, and I have clarity on that. So why don't we, why don't we start with that? Um, Jim actually emailed me because he asked this question to Ed Slot to uh, to clarify what uh, we weren't sure about last time. But the question really was related to uh, someone who wrote in. They had uh, bolted upright at 2 a.m. right before tax day here in 2023 and uh, realized that after doing a Roth conversion, uh, that caused their modified adjusted gross income or their AGI, I guess I should say, not the modified version, but their AGI, to exceed the limit for 2022 that would have allowed them to make a Roth contribution into their Roth IRA. So they bolted up right at 2 a.m. in the morning and, and ran down and uh, filled out everything it w- was required to recharacterize that contribution over to a traditional IRA contribution for which there are no AGI limits. For clarification there, there are certainly AGI limits for the deductibility of that contribution, but not to make a contribution at all. So he uh, um, you know, thought initially back when they did the Roth contribution earlier in 2020 that they were going to be good to go. Later in the year did a Roth conversion and then realized after putting their taxes together um, here in the springtime in April of 2023 that something uh, there there was going to be a big problem with that. And we clarified last week, the part we did know 
is that Roth conversions do not count towards the Maggie modified adjusted gross income that limits your ability to do a Roth contribution, a direct contribution. And those limits, just to remind people, uh, in 2022, um, for a single person, the phase out, they call it, so your ability to contribute to a Roth IRA is phased out over a range of modified adjusted gross income. For a single person, it's 129000 to 144000 and for a married filing joint couple, it's uh, the phase out is from two hundred and four to two hundred and fourteen thousand. So they had, uh, I believe it was a married couple. I, I um, so they had exceeded that two hundred and fourteen thousand uh, dollar AGI figure with the Roth conversions included. However, the Maggie for this test excludes Roth conversions, so um, that's why they were likely okay. We didn't. Um, you know, we kind of just supposed that their regular income without the conversion was under the limit. So obviously that is, that's key. But, uh, um, you know, that was where they started to freak out. The 2023 limits, just so people know, since we're talking in 2023 here, the single phase out is now 138 to 153,000. So they'll, you know, they'll slowly phase out your ability to contribute to your Roth. Uh, over that uh, range of modified adjusted gross income to where it's completely barred at 153,000 as a single filer, the phase out for married filing joint in 2023 is 218 to 228. So that's where you are. But but the thing we were confident about is what I mentioned: Roth conversions don't get factored into this AGI measure in order to determine contribution eligibility. What we didn't know after he had in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., done a recharacterization of that original contribution from Roth to traditional, if he could then subsequently recharacterize the recharacterization and go back because they were allowed to do a Roth contribution. There was no need for them to have bolted upright at night and changed it. They were fine. And we didn't know if there was a limit on recharacterizations, and that's where Ed Slot had the answer. And so Jim writes, uh, I asked Ed Slot, and there were no restrictions on multiple recharacterizations of the same contribution. So your listener can recharacterize the 2022 recharacterization back to her Roth. However, it must be done by the regular deadline, which is October 15th of the year following the year of the contribution. So you've got till October 15th of 2023 to, quote, fix this um, I guess it's really fixing the fix that you applied that didn't need to be fixed, if that's not confusing enough. So uh, I think it's good news that this is not a big deal. You obviously know how to do a recharacterization because you've done it. Um, do it again, but recharacterize it back to the Roth, get that thing back in the Roth and uh, let it be. And in the future, when you're determining whether or not you can do a Roth contribution, forget about conversions. Conversions don't factor into that uh, limitation at all. The one thing that will warn you of, though, keep good documentation on all this because it's highly likely with this kind of recharacterization flurry that you're doing that you're going to get a letter audit with the IRS saying, what the heck's going on here? Can you provide us proof that this really did happen the way that the paperwork appears uh, here? So keep good documentation. Don't freak out when you get the letter audit. They're very common. And uh, um, just be prepared to supply that information and then it should go away and all will be good. 
So I wanted to tackle that one first. It's not really a question, just kind of a lingering issue. And uh, since we, we didn't know that final piece where whether or not you could recharacterize the original recharacterization, uh, I wanted to get to that right away. So to our first question, we'll call this the, the new question of the week because it came in here recently. And um, uh, came in to Jim. He forwarded it over to me. And so, excuse me, he uh, writes, uh, Jim, addressed it to him, obviously, (laughs) for over a year. I've been enjoying listening to you. I suspect this is a Chris question as it's a deep in the woods or deep in the weeds Social Security question. Um, Let me emphasize that I'm one of the listeners who loves the detailed approach you take with explanations. Keep it up. Well, great. Uh, We'll do our best. My question relates to my situation where I am 67 and still working enough to reach the maximum Social Security tax payment, and I don't plan to apply for benefits until age 70. So let me clarify so people following along understand what he's saying. The maximum Social Security tax payment, that's the maximum amount of your wages that are subject to Social Security taxes. There is a limit. Not everyone hits that limit. Uh, In 2023, that limit is $160,200, up from $147,000, which means only your first $160,200 of wages in 2023 are going to be affected by Social Security taxes. If you make more than that, no Social Security taxes are withheld from your pay, no, none are owed. Also, those earnings don't enhance your benefits because you're not paying taxes on the earnings above that limit. The earnings above that limit have no effect on your benefit. So there's effectively, because of this, this is really where the maximum Social Security benefit comes from. It isn't that there's actually a limit on the benefit. There's a limit on how much they're counting towards your into your earnings record, and it's via these annual maximums. Uh, that's what ultimately limits your future benefits, not an absolute limit, some arbitrary limit on the benefit itself. Um, so that's what he's talking about there. Um, I've been earning over that threshold where the Social Security withholds uh, since 1988, the year I turned 33. So he's had a very well-paying career over a long period of time and has been breaking through that maximum, uh, which does vary every year. I already mentioned what they are for this year, the 16200. So he says for tax year 2022, I reached 35 years where I've made the maximum required social security contributions. So why did he mention that? He mentioned 35 years because it's 35 years, your your best 35 years of earnings that go into your calculation for social security benefit. And he said I've, you know, 2022, last year, I filled my 35 years, uh, and and they're best because they've maxed out every single one of those. Everyone was above that limit. What will happen between now and age 70 if my earnings continue to exceed the maximum Social Security limit, and what will happen if I do that until, say, age 75? I'm going to table that question until we get to the rest of what he's asking goes on and says, will I be eligible to essentially double dip, get a COLA based on CPI on my Social Security while benefiting from wage inflation by adjusting my average monthly earnings upward, even after I've maxed out 35 years of highest taxed earnings? Or can you only get either COLA or wage inflation on earnings, but not both? 
So this is all kind of wrapped up in how does Social Security apply things like cost of living adjustments and wage inflation. And uh, then ultimately, it you know, addresses his question, what's going to happen between now and his age 70 if his earnings continue to, to be high? Maybe even if he works till 75, going past that maximum wage limit that we just discussed. So there is no double dipping. And the reason for that is wage inflation, as measured by the Department of Labor, is affecting your earnings record as they use wage inflation to adjust all of your previous year wages into equivalent dollars in the year you turn age 60. So essentially, every year as you're in your career, aging, approaching your age 60, as you're putting earnings into your earnings record at Social Security, which he's put in 35, you know, really high ones, and then some other ones as well. They don't treat all those at face value when they ultimately go to calculate your benefit. They realize that dollars that you earned in your 30s, he said he's been maxing this thing out since he was 33. Those dollars, those earnings, you shouldn't treat them the same as earnings when he's 53 or 60. They should be adjusted. So they adjust them via that wage inflation data that comes in. However, once you reach age 60, your earnings record will receive no future wage inflation adjustments. It just stops. So if you continue to earn money past age 60, it's totally fine. And they're going to look at those and they're going to add them to your overall earnings record. But None of the earnings, those new ones nor the old ones, are ever going to be adjusted again for wage inflation. So over time, the fact that he's got 35 years where he's maxed out, if he continues to max out, it's likely not going to increase his benefit much at all. Uh, Probably none, but if it does, it's going to be very minor. And that's because as those high wages go in at face value the chance that they're going to replace an inflation-adjusted wage from earlier in his career that was already at the maximum, even if they did replace them, it's not like you're replacing a zero in your earnings record with a really big number. You're replacing a really big number with a slightly bigger, bigger number. And those aren't really going to contribute a lot to an increased benefit. But it's not impossible. It's certainly possible to have uh, wages like he's describing as he ages 65, 70, 75 to ultimately increase his benefit. And they're going to look every year. They don't, they don't cut it off. Every single year that you have wages, the calculator at Social Security, the computer, recalculates your benefit to see if those new earnings help you. And if they do, they're going to count them. If, if they don't, which they're likely not to, usually in his case, uh, then no harm. There's nothing that's going to harm you. So that's kind of what's going to happen there. I don't think he's going to experience much, but he's definitely not going to double dip because, like I said, the wage inflation adjustments stop when you reach age 60. Then when you are 62, they start to grant you inflation adjustments, not for the age 62 benefit that you might earn in the year you turn 62, but the inflation is measured in the year you turn 62, that inflation in the form of uh, CPI will be applied as a cost of living adjustment 
to your age 63 year benefit and all benefits that you might claim after that, whether you're claiming or not. That's a confusing part for a lot of people. They're, they're not sure if they actually get the cost of living adjustments if they haven't claimed yet. He's, he's looking at claiming at 70. Well, all the COLAs that happened for, from a, his age 62 to 70 are going to be granted to his record. And when he ultimately claims at 70, his benefit will have received the, the, the bump up of all the cost of living adjustments since he was 62. So there's no double dipping there. It kind of switches from wage inflation effects over to cost of living from CPI effects. And um, so I think that's really what he was asking. It's, it's, it is an either or. Uh, there's a very hard limit. You know, it's very specific. It's not arbitrary. Well, it might be arbitrary, but it's a very specific age. 60 is when the wage inflation ceases. 62 applied in the year you turn 63 is when the cost of living kicks in and then we'll continue every year thereafter assuming there is a cost of living adjustment some years there's not um but his maxed out 35 years he's got now is probably going to do all the work in generating his actual benefit and additional work is likely not to help him but it's not mathematically impossible it is possible um that those wages he's talking about earning maybe until he's 75 could ultimately bump up his benefit a little bit. So I think that attacks everything. I will say um, he did include some uh, uh, trivia questions, which I'm sure he was assuming we'd be doing the show together with Jim. And so I'll share those just for people. Um, I obviously know what state he's from because I'm reading the question instead of Jim reading it. But uh, the first one is pretty easy. The, the two President Roosevelt's were both from this state. So maybe some of you would get it from that. I, I would not have gotten it from that. The second hint was Woodstock Music and Art Fair was held in this state in 1969. At that point, I would have uh, gotten it because that tells me it's in uh, New York State. And that was in 1969, of course, when um, my mother and I attended when I was two years old. No, I'm lying. I didn't really do that. But that might have been kind of fun. I wish I had some pictures of that if it actually happened. Um, and then the final one, built between 1817 and 1825, a canal traversed 363 miles from the Hudson River to Lake Erie, leading the state to be called the Empire State, a leader in population, industry, and economic strength. And, of course, that's the Erie Canal in New York. Most people would gotten it at that point. But I, I wouldn't have gotten it from the two President Roosevelt's were both from this state. I would have had to have at least one of the other two hints. So thanks, George. Um, excellent question. And we'll head into our next one. So the next question comes in from the state of Washington. This came in actually via our Social Security blog we have a um, we actually have a website for the for the podcast itself. It's the retirement dot com. Most of you probably just listen through whatever streaming service that you that you choose. But there is a website where you can actually search for old episodes and and things like that. And the episodes themselves are posted there. So we have a podcast website, but then we have a, a site that's dedicated just to Social Security because there's so many people out there looking for social Social Security answers. And that website, uh, that blog is, is uh, address is helpwithmysocialsecurity.com. Just all one big word, 
helpwithmysocialsecurity.com. And on there, I um, there's a place you can submit your questions, which is where this question came from. And then um, I post blog posts with, with answers to people's questions on there and, and things like that. And it's um, pretty sure that's searchable. So if you're looking for a specific uh, topic, you can find it. Let me actually, let me look and make sure it's supposed to be searchable, but I don't want to promise something that's not really there. Yeah, it's not super obvious. If you click on the blog page on that website, uh, about a third of the way down over on the far right, there's a little magnifying glass, which signals, you know, signifies in the internet search. You click on that little search, uh, search box opens up and uh, you can then search for a particular topic. And this, this goes back a ways. Um, I don't, I don't remember how long that blog has been up, but it's, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a day or two. Um, I'm scrolling through here and there's posts back. Uh, it's still loading even more and more back to 2017. I'm already, and there's still more beyond that. So it's been up for quite a while. So most of the questions you've heard covered on the podcast here have found their way at some point onto that blog. So that's a good place if you're looking for Social Security-specific answers, you can go there. But this person sub- submitted through there. We usually get Social Security questions, but uh, not always. This one is actually not really a Social Security question, but um, I, I think it's uh, uh, kind of funny <laughs> to to talk about. So it's from Washington, and... Um, says, uh, Jim, just curious, do you guys ever answer questions from a real George? If you use your traditional way uh, to deal with a person's name, you'd be using George as their real name. Hope you guys keep going for a long time. You have a way of way that that helps us. Joe Sixpacks really understand. So uh, hope we are relatable to a lot of people and we, we come across as understandable, even though we get into some complicated things and sometimes uh, the word salad gets a little um, mixed up. But uh, we're trying our best to help people out there understand their retirement situations. But um, yeah, we do obviously uh, occasionally get people named George who submit a question. And we call everybody George to be anonymous. And he's right. When we have a George write us, uh, when we call him George, we're using their real name. But the first time this happened, this was years and years ago, we got a George submit a question when we got to it. Jim said, well, we need to change the name so we're not using his real name. And I pointed out, if we use George for everybody else and then we use uh, Jimmy for George, then people will know that person must be George because uh, we're avoiding using George. And that's that would be the signal. So, so we decided uh, appropriately at that time that everybody's George. So we do occasionally have Georges that are referred to as George. And you might wonder, maybe if you're not a longtime listener, the uh, why did we pick George? And it all comes from this, actually. Just what I always wanted, my own little bunny rabbit. I will name him George, and I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him. I'm not a bunny rabbit. So that old Bugs Bunny cartoon with Daffy Duck in there, that uh, the abominable snowman. Um found him and uh, decided he, he Daffy Duck was pretending to be a bunny rabbit, had his little ears on and uh, burrowed up and found himself in the snow by the abominable snowman 
And of course, the abominable snowman with his, apparently in the cartoon, didn't have very good eyesight, thought he was an actual bunny rabbit, and uh, he decided to adopt him as his pet and call him George. So uh, Jim uh, was a big fan of that cartoon. I liked it too, to, in full disclosure. Um, so that's where George originally came from. So that's that's why we use George just as our way of anonymizing everyone. So thanks for writing in. Uh, that allowed me to explain, <laughs> you know, our usage, our our treatment of the the the, the name George for all of our uh, listeners who submit questions. So um, next actual question we'll get into here. This one comes from Ohio <laughs> and longer time listener because they actually address it George and I, I can tell from their email address their name isn't really George but um, it starts hello Jim and Chris thank you for the excellent podcast I'm a long time listener first time questioner from Ohio the home to most presidents so the the two Roosevelt's for from New York but the most quantity of presidents have come from Ohio apparently my question is related to timing of starting Social Security benefits my wife and I both retired at 58 with her six months younger than me. My benefit is close to the maximum with her age 67 benefit currently shown as 3000 per month, which is still pretty healthy. It's, it's close to the maximum. Um, that maximum, which if you recall, I, I mentioned comes from uh, the fact that they max out how much of your earnings are actually subject to Social Security taxes, and that's what ultimately limits your benefit on the back end when they do the calculation. In 2023, those max benefits are ended up being about $3,600 for your full retirement age and can be bigger, of course, if you delay to 70 but your maximum uh, PIA, which is the benefit at your full retirement age, Right now we're hitting about thirty six, thirty seven hundred dollars, somewhere right in there. So hers being at three thousand is, uh, you know, pr- pretty high. Well, it's definitely higher than average. The average is under two thousand per month. So he goes on. When looking at various social security optimizers, they tend to recommend that my wife take her social security at sixty two, with mine at seventy. This seems to put my wife at risk for a low benefit if I happen to die right after she started drawing at this age since my survivor benefit would be so low. It seems to me that a better option would be her starting around 66, since my potential retirement benefit would be approaching my full retirement age. Is there some nuance related to the survivor benefit that I'm not considering that would make 62 more viable? Thanks again for your help, George from Ohio. So let me address the Social Security optimizers. There's a lot of them out there now, and not many that are worth using. I'll just put it bluntly. Um, there's some I've run across that their calculations are appear not to be accurate. So just the technical calculation they're making isn't even correct. Uh, and others where it's they're kind of being mysterious on their assumptions that they're using to determine your optimized or best benefit. He's talking about a, an optimizer that recommended she claim at 62 well, that's going to be mostly a function, assuming the calculation's being done correctly. To have that recommendation, there's an assumption of a fairly young mortality. Um, because if you are worried about longevity, which is where we personally value Social Security the most, if you live beyond median life expectancy, 
then claiming early is not going to give you the most dollars in uh, in most cases. So I'm not going to uh, – I can't judge because I don't have all the information uh, as to why this particular calculator recommended her claim at 62. What I can do is kind of reveal the nuances of what he's talking about with the relationship between her benefit and a potential survivor benefit on his record, which he's saying his is maximum, so his is a bit bigger than hers, although not a ton because hers is nice and healthy. That 3000 is 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 pretty high. His maximum can't be more than about 20% bigger. Um, but she, she claims at 62, she's going to uh, take a reduction of 30% on there for the rest of her life on her own benefit, so she won't get the 3000 So the nuance, the nuance here, he's worried about her claiming at 62 and then him dying fairly young. Well, the nuance is if she were claiming her own benefit, or even if she hadn't yet and you died, she's not forced to immediately claim your benefit. The only thing she's not going to be able to do with your survivor benefit, which you've mentioned is the max, it's the larger of the two in the household, she won't be able to get it up to your age 70 benefit limit or amount if you didn't live until 70. And that's because delayed retirement credits, which you are going to earn by delaying past 67 to 70, so your benefit, you're going to increase by 24%. If you do what you claimed, waiting until 70, being 58, that means, um, let's see, my wife and I both retired at 58, although I, it doesn't say it was this year, um, so actually I don't know their ages, so I can't swear, uh, but he makes a, a mention of her being an age 67 benefit, which, which implies they were born after 1960. So um, what she can't do is earn delayed retirement credits on your behalf, on your benefit. The only person who can do that is you. And if you do, they will pass to her if you die. But she can't create them if they don't already exist by you living past your age 67, full retirement age. So let's pretend you died uh, before that. She had claimed at 62, and then you died at 64, which if you had claimed at 64, you would have claimed a, a reduced benefit because that was below your age 67. But she isn't required to switch to yours at that point. She could continue receiving her age 62 benefit until she re reached her full retirement age. And at that point, switch to your full survivor benefit. Not the one that would have been, not. it's not reduced because you died before 67. It's sitting there waiting to be claimed. The only thing that will reduce it from its full amount, which is if you said you have the maximum benefit, it's somewhere around $3,600, $3,700, is if she were to claim it before turning full retirement age. And there's no requirement that if you die and she's collecting her own, that she choose yours instead. She can ride hers out until getting to full retirement age, collecting some dollars, and then getting the maximum survivor benefit then for the rest of her life. The only thing she'll be missing out on is the increase that you could have generated between 67 and 70 through delayed retirement credits. That's really what's at risk here if you die early. 
Uh, her claiming 62 will not reduce the survivor benefit that she ultimately switched to, so there's really no harm there. What is going to be the case is ongoing while you're both alive, the penalty in the monthly amount that she's going to be receiving, the 30% reduction is going to continue forever until you die. And I'm going to say until, you know, technically either of you die, because whichever of you goes first, that lower benefit, which is hers, is going to disappear. But as long as you're both alive, you'll be receiving that lower benefit. Now, if you've done all the calculations and you've determined while you're both alive, your benefit unreduced or hopefully getting to age 70 plus her age 62 benefit is going to be plenty to do for us what we want to do. We would propose that you look at Social Security as a a key element of secure income to cover your minimum dignity floor expenses. But I have no idea if this person's embracing our overall retirement approach. He's just asking the Social Security question. But you'll have to judge. I wouldn't take an online internet site's optimizer suggestion as the reason to claim at 62. The better choice, in my opinion, is do some forecast. Take a look at it. Look at your expenses. Look at those key expenses you want to protect with secure income. Look at the combination of Social Security benefits for the two of you. And if it all fits and makes sense with her claiming at 62, there's your answer. That's, that's a viable approach. But a lot of folks uh, really do appreciate having a little more robust Social Security income to protect that minimum dignity floor, particularly in, particularly in a longevity situation. If both of you were to live beyond median life expectancy, having hers be reduced is going to start to be kind of harmful, uh, generally, in the projections that I see. So just make sure you're making the best decision for yourself. Do not take some arbitrary website's suggestion for an optimal claiming age. Um, It's just you're taking their assumptions. Make sure you understand what assumptions they're making. Make sure you agree with the assumptions that they're making. And you're essentially turning over the keys of what's important. You're, You're letting them decide what's the best use of Social Security. I think it's better for you to decide how best Social Security fits into your overall situation, and then figure out a claiming strategy that supports that. That, I guess, is how I would close this one out, is just make that recommendation. So next question here. This one comes in from Virginia, actually. Uh, No hints. uh, No hints on that last one either about Ohio. This one comes in from Virginia, pretty recent. And starts, good day, gentlemen. I've listened for the past two years. Um, My cousin's husband passed away of cancer seven years ago when she was 42. She's now 49 and has two children, the youngest age seven. She is receiving survivor benefits for all three. My understanding is that assuming she remains single, based on current laws, Both children will continue receiving benefits until they turn 18 or 19. Let me pause right there. The children receiving benefits will not have any, will not be affected at all if she gets remarried. That benefit is because their father has passed away and had earned a survivor benefit that uh, spouses and children could claim. The spouse collecting a survivor benefit and remarrying before age 60 stops that benefit, but that will not yank the rug out from under the kids. 
So just be aware of that. So this first statement is, you know, in part it's true. Both children continue receiving benefits until they turn 18 or turn 19 if they're still in high school. That has nothing to do with her being remarried or not. Second one, single mom receives benefits until the youngest turns 16 in nine years, and then her benefit stops as long as she does not remarry and will restart at 60. So yes, she is as young as she is, only 49. The reason why she's able to collect a Social Security benefit on his record as a survivor She is a spouse in care situation, which means she's caring for children that are of the decedent, of the deceased person, the husband. But there's a limit on that. The assumption is once they reach 16, they're old enough where you don't have to be at home watching them anymore after school and stuff like that. So there's really no limit. There's no reason why you couldn't technically go out and get a job as far as having an obligation to the kids. Uh, so that's why they use 16. 16 is in the eyes of Social Security is old enough for them to come home after school, care for themselves until you're off work, that kind of stuff. Before that, they will let you have an unreduced survivor benefit um, as a spouse in care situation, a spouse in care of children that are receiving those benefits. So it's uh, right, it'll shut off at 16, but then become reavailable at age 60, but not at the same amount. And that's because it is true that a survivor benefit can be claimed as young as age 60 or younger if their spouse in care, like we just described, as young as age 60 or as young as age 50 if you're disabled. But it isn't the full survivor benefit. It is a reduced survivor benefit, some 25% less than what you would receive if you waited to your full retirement age to claim the survivor benefit. So I just wanted to add to that clarification that the full survivor benefit will be shut off at 16. And then at 60, she could claim again, as long as she has not remarried during that time period and is still married, she could remarry and then get divorced and have access to this again. But um, uh, she can't be currently married to someone else prior to age 60 and um, have access to this original survivor benefit. But let's assume, because he's talking all about her not remarrying, she's not remarried. At 60, she could turn on a survivor benefit again, but it will be reduced because she's claiming early. She's not claiming at her full retirement age. And um, at 60, does she reapply or can she do that online? I suspect, especially by that time, she'll be able to do it online if she can't do it already. Every year, they're adding more and more things you can do on the website because that's going to be a way for Social Security to help contain control costs moving forward is if more people can do things on their own. And that that way, the offices and the, the support staff and stuff can just be used there for the more difficult or, or confusing elements or 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 complicated cases and all the standard stuff people can kind of deal with on their own on the website. So they're trying their hardest to add more and more functionality to the website. So I suspect there'll be no problem with her claiming a survivor benefit when she turns 60. It will not turn on automatically. Um, th- that'll have to be a choice that she makes. It will have to, it'll only turn on if she actually claims it. 
Um, he goes on, what happens if she starts working in a few years? I assume depending on income, it could affect her social security received. Yes. Um, it's nine more years before her youngest turns 16. So she'll have that survivor benefit, but she is going to be affected by the earnings test because she's below her full retirement age. If she chooses to go back to work and she makes more than the annual earnings limit, which is about 20 thousand dollars uh at this point so um i'll get you the exact number here i probably should have had this one um uh, at my fingertips um but again since the internet has this 21 240 so it's it's just just finally gone over twenty thousand recently so it's twenty one thousand two hundred forty dollars if she earns less than that then there's no effect but if she earns more than that then there's going to be that one dollar for every two dollars over that limit that's going to affect her benefit it won't affect the kids though those kids uh, have their own independent benefits if she never works until she reaches 65 can she still receive medicare a and b based on her husband's payments into the system she could not find any statement of his of his from social security and does not believe he ever had one when she applied in person, the rep never showed her his account or how they calculated his benefits. How can she get a statement from Social Security to show how many quarters he works? Would it state on his statement that survivor benefits his wife is entitled to for Medicare? So the fact that he had enough credits to generate a survivor benefit also implies that he's paid into the system long enough to qualify for Medicare. So... Uh, as a spouse of someone, they do have that door open for Medicare for a non-working spouse who didn't earn Medicare on their own, didn't have enough work credits in the system to earn it on their own record, can claim it on a spouse who has earned enough credits. So it's part of that spousal benefits package, essentially. And the fact that there's these retirement or these survivor benefits flowing, that tells me this person, and, and they weren't you know, super young, they were 42 years old. So there was plenty of time that, that was easily enough time to have qualified for Medicare uh, through enough payments. And so uh, she should, if she does not end up earning enough on her own and have enough in the earnings record to qualify, that she should qualify on his record. Ultimate confirmation of that would be calling Social Security and asking him that. They generally will not give you the details from someone else's record. So you're essentially going to be asking on, on her behalf. She'll be asking on her own, do I, as, a, as the surviving spouse of this person, uh, qualify for, for Medicare? Um, you know, and, and what benefit do I qualify? She already knows that as far as survivorship at this point. Those are questions they'll ask because they're benefits for her. I don't think they're going to give her his uh, earnings record. Just because you're a spouse, they do not um, – Each everybody has their own independent. And so I don't think you're going to get the actual – like an old statement of his or the earnings record for him. But it really doesn't matter because the key question is does she qualify? And she can confirm that qualification by contacting Social Security and they should be able to confirm it. But I'm, I'm not worried because if, if uh, the fact that there's this uh, survivor benefit flowing uh, should also grant her Medicare uh, payments as well. I, I, I don't deal with a lot. I'll, I'll put the caveat out there that I don't deal a lot with the uh, cases of people that have uh, passed away so young 
um, because we are retirement planning uh, focused firm. And there maybe there is some little nuance in there that I'm I'm not aware of. So uh, I guess I I'm I'm 95% sure that she's fine in this regard. But to make it 100%, I would call them. I would just contact them. It's an easy question. They'll be able to pull up her her record and it'll show whether she's uh, qualifying under his record or not. And I th- I think they'll find uh, that she does. <clears throat> um, let's see here. Next question, probably last question. Um, this one comes in is also pretty, actually this one came in on my birthday on April 1st here just recently. And let's see here. He does provide a hint. So I'm going to read it just for your benefit. You can guess it. I can see what it is because I'm reading the question instead of Jim. The state that has a Navy shipyard that over the past 250 years has seen four different sovereign flags flown over the shipyard gates. That's a, that's a great hint. That's a great hint. So this, I, I probably would not have gotten this. I think I would have guessed Baltimore or something like that, but it's in, it's Virginia. The flags were British, U.S., Confederate, and Virginia Commonwealth for one week in April of 1861 that got to four different sovereign flags uh, over its 250-year history. So it's from the state of, of Virginia. So here's the question, and this question is about uh, Irma. Um, so it's technically a Medicare question, but Medicare and Social Security are kind of mixed in and administered under the same umbrella. So uh, we'll, we'll count this as a Social Security question since we're doing a Social Security show here. Uh, the question, my question is about form SSA-44. Uh, SSA stands for Social Security Administration uh, dash 44. This is a form, uh, if you're worried about IRMA, the income-related monthly adjustment amount, I-R-M-A-A. In other words, your Medicare premium surcharges that are surcharges based on your modified adjusted gross income. So essentially, they're means testing Medicare premiums and have for a number of years. So those of greater means that have higher adjusted gross incomes are going to pay higher than the standard Medicare premiums called IRMA, I-R-M-A-A. SSA 44 is a way to request relief of the IRMA based on a life-changing event. So that's what that is. So the form I would submit to have them reevaluate my Maggie modified adjusted gross IRMA um, I'm sorry, gross IRMA, magnif- modified adjusted gross income, and IRMA as a result of a life-changing event. Since this is a Social Security form, I'm hoping this qualifies as a Social Security question. I believe that my wife's retirement will be a qualifying life-changing event, and I know how much my wife makes in a year. So let me give you the list of life-changing events here, because he's right. His, her retirement is a life-changing event. And the life-changing events include, it's a very specific list, very, very specific list. It is marriage, divorce or an annulment, death of your spouse, work stoppage or reduction. That's where retirement comes in, but they don't call it retirement. It's just work stoppage or reduction. So you don't have to be retired. Could be just you went part-time. Your your work reduced. That's you know, that, that's a life-changing event. Next one, loss of income-producing property. This is one I always need to clarify because people look at this as, oh, 
This is my get out of the SSA 44 is my get out of jail free card when I sell that rental property when I get into retirement and I don't want to be a landlord anymore, but it's a rental property I've held for 25 or 30 years. So there was a whole bunch of depreciation recapture or or cap gains in there. So my AGI spikes in that year and then I get an IRMA effect but it's I've I've lost that income producing property that counts no it doesn't this is a loss not because you sold it this is a loss it says specifically not due to the sale or transfer of the property this is a loss due to natural disasters disease arson uh, fraud or theft those kinds of things you, it was taken from you it wasn't you didn't lose the the income from the property because you decided to sell it that was voluntary and your choice it's if it was taken from you next one loss of pension income and then final employer settlement payment. So if there was some type of employer uh, settlement because the employer had a bankruptcy or reorganization and that settlement was a big payment to you, it would show up as taxable income in that year and maybe spike you up into IRMA. And you can say, no, 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 that was a life, you know, that, that's one of these life-changing events. So there's there's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them. That's, it's those seven. Those are the seven life-changing events. Very, very specific. You can't just make up your own. Those are the seven. If you have one of these seven, it doesn't necessarily exempt you from IRMA. What it does is this form asks them, instead of looking back at my income tax return from two tax years ago, which is the default, please consider more recent income after my life-changing event, because as you can see, it's lower. That's what I'm saying kind of verbally to the Social Security Administration, uh, uh, to the who's, who you know, determines these Medicare premium surcharges. So uh, that's what the SSA 44 does. So going back to his question, I believe that my wife's retirement will be a qualifying event. Yes. My question is, how do they do the math to determine how to adjust your Maggie Irma as a result of a life-changing event? My example, and he goes through an example essentially of uh, Maggie being uh, in 2024 being 250000 but that's made up of his wife's salary, some cap gains, interest dividends, some Roth conversions, those which count towards Irma. If my wife's salary is seventy five and zero, then in 2026, will they simply subtract 75 from our original 2024 Maggie to give us a new Maggie of 175 other than the loss of my wife's salary, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't quite work that way. It's not like um, the reason why he's using these years is that in 2026, the Medicare premiums for 2026 will by default be based on their modified adjusted gross income for the year 2024. So that's why he's using those years. And and there's that gap in there, that two-year gap. That reflects how they typically deal with IRMA is they look at your tax return uh, in 2024, in this case, to apply the 2026 Medicare premium surcharges. He's asking, if I file this SSA 24 and tell him my wife's income is, is gone, do they still use all the numbers from 2024 and reduce by $75,000 the income? Is that how it works? No, that's not how it works. What the SSA 44 does is asks you to come up with your income for the year after the life-changing event. So she retires at the end of 2024, so that's what makes her income go away. 
what you're doing with the SSA 44 is asking them, no, 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 please use my income from 2025 or 2026 to determine my Medicare premium surcharges because 2024 is unfair for you to use because we're no longer making that much money. And they ask you to fill in the number. So you come up with it. So it's not going to be based on the dividends, interest, cap gains, Roth conversions from 2024, less the wife's wages that are now gone. They're going to start with a clean slate and just ask them, no, okay, in in 2026, what is going to be your income with all those things? Do an estimate on these things. And they're going to take your word for it initially. But they will eventually get your tax return. That's how they were able to pull your 2024 tax return to do the calculation in the default method, which was going to kick you into IRMA. But they're going to take your word for it. And then when they finally get your tax return, if it's consistent with what you told them, everything's fine. If it's not, they're going to come back on you and collect and say, hey, you told us you you were going to have $150,000 worth of AGI, which left you out of IRMA. But you had 250. Turns out you either something unexpected happened or you lied to us or something. And so you are going to be paying Irma for this past year, not at the reduced rate you convinced us to use, but rather at what the numbers actually tell us on your tax return. So be aware there is this reconciliation that will happen. And uh, so you need to be truthful with them. You need to be honest with them because they're eventually going to get the tax return. And that's ultimately what's going to determine your, you know, your modified adjusted gross income for a given year is the tax return itself. All that you're allowed to do, you're not allowed to arbitrarily ask them to use a more recent year. You have to have a life-changing event. And then that gives you the this you know ability to request them use a, a more recent year, but you're going to come up with the AGI estimate yourself. Um, so pointing out a couple things with this this because of this, um, sometimes we'll do some income bunching in a year when we know there's going to be a life changing event. That is oftentimes a good year to do maybe a big Roth conversion. Because if you're going to file an SSA 44 due to retirement, um, maybe you can get this Roth conversion kind of ignored when it would otherwise be counted as it's kind of booted out and, and rejected in the new calculation based on the SSA 44, use a more recent tax year. So be aware of that. They don't They don't look at the reasons why you your income went down and look back and say, no, we're not going to let you use the life-changing event because you did a Roth conversion that year as well. And you're, you're, you're using this life-changing event as a, as a way to, you know, protect your Irma calculation from that Roth conversion. They don't do that. There's nothing in the rules, nothing in anything I've read about procedurally that they ever look at the, what makes up your income that year and judging that income as something other than it just is what it is. It's just literally a trigger. Do you have a life-changing event? If the answer is yes, then you are allowed to request that they use a more recent year income instead of the year that they were going to default to to determine your IRMA. That's what the SSA 44 does. 
Other thing I'll point out is you can't preemptively file an SSA 44. So there's almost always going to be a time when you are affected in this way where you'll start the year paying IRMA, maybe a really high IRMA, because they'll send you in November or so an estimate for what your Medicare premiums are going to be in the upcoming year based on your, you know, so let's say um, to use current years, 2023 that we're in right now as I record this, people that were going to be on Medicare in 2023 got their IRMA, their their Medicare premium statement in November-ish, late November, early December. They got a letter that said, hey, uh, your Medicare premiums for 2023 will be this. Those premiums are going to be based on your income from 2021. Okay? So... It's at that point where they have said you're going to be affected by IRMA that you then can file SSA 44. So you're not going to be able to file it until it's almost time when Medicare premiums are going to be owed. There's not enough time for them to process that SSA 44. So you'll likely pay Medicare premium surcharges for a couple months. And then if they approve the SSA 44 and you are, they'll recalculate it into a lower IRMA bracket or even no IRMA application, they will then credit you back for those IRMA surcharges that you might have paid for January, February, March, those types of things, as as long as it takes to get the SSA 44 through. So uh, a lot of people get really antsy and they're trying to jump the gun and file the SSA 44 to prevent it. But the SSA 44 is filed in response to that letter that you received. I've I haven't heard of anyone successfully filing an SSA 44 before the premium determination has been made and mailed out to you. So just be aware of that little glitch in the system. You've got to you you might be paying some really high IRMA premium surcharges for a couple months as they're approving your SSA 44, but then they'll credit you back. But just be aware of those cash flow needs. Um, now, if you're in a really, really high IRMA bracket and paying super high Medicare premiums for a couple months, I would assume with that much income, you've got to have the resources to afford to pay, you know, a $500 a month Medicare premium. Um, so it shouldn't be too much of a burden other than maybe annoying or a shock. So um, I think that's why they haven't addressed it in some other way is if you're if you're really affected by Irma in a significant way, you must have a you know, you've got a lot of resources. So uh, them charging you Irma for a couple months before your SSA 44 gets filed uh, shouldn't be too much of a burden for most people. But uh, just be prepared for it. Just it's just the way the system works. And uh, um, if you fill out the form properly and your numbers all make sense and they're valid, uh, they are, you know, they approve SSA 44s very, very frequently. It's it's the norm as long as uh, what's what you're claiming to have happened has really happened. So, so kind of a Social Security slash Medicare twist on that one with Irma. Irma is uh, becoming it's more and more a topic on the show because more and more people ask about it. Why? Because more and more people are being affected by it. Because Irma is capturing more and more and more and more people all the time into those premium surcharges. Um, and you know, years ago, hardly anybody was affected by Irma. In the early days, very, very few people. It wasn't a big deal. Now a lot of people are starting to be affected by Irma. Some significantly affected by Irma. Paying two or three times for Medicare premiums than they otherwise would pay. Because their modified adjusted gross income is so high. 
Sometimes there's stuff you can do about it. Sometimes there's strategies that you can deploy that might uh, give you some relief maybe in the future through some tax strategies. Um, but many times there's really not much you can do about it. It's just one of those things that it's, it's the curse that comes on along with the blessing of all the income you have. If you've got tons of income in retirement, yes, there's going to be a little negative side effect when it comes to Medicare that you're going to be paying these higher premiums. And that's, uh, you know, that's just how they decided to try to bolster or, 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 uh, fortify the Medicare system because Medicare social security gets all the the press about running out of money and that sort of thing. Medicare is much more precarious, actually, than Social Security. The Medicare uh, trust fund is is um, projected to be threatened uh, much sooner than Social Security. So this was one of the attempts to try to help that Medicare system. It's it's an inflow outflow problem, just like Social Security. If the outflows are too big compared to the inflows, then you got a problem. Um, and this is a way that they could improve the inflows, right? The amount of money paid in to the system uh, is by having people with higher adjusted gross incomes pay higher premiums than people with lower. Uh, and just so you know, the um, basic IRMA limit for a single, I'm sorry, for a married filing joint couple, right? Just just right about $200,000 now. So uh, that's kind of, the, if, you're, if you're below that, IRMA probably isn't anything that you need to be concerned about unless you're close to it. But uh, if you're, if you're up at that level or above, be prepared. Irma is going to be part of your life almost for sure. And uh, it's worth someone taking a look at it that knows what they're doing to see if there's any strategies for helping you out with that. Sometimes there's things you can do where you can uh, create a lot of income over a short period of time through Roth conversions or something similar in order to kind of, we call it ripping off the Band-Aid where it does push you up into some really high IRMA brackets for a year or two, but that then gives you more long-term relief, keeping you in lower brackets for the rest of your life or maybe even fall out of IRMA completely for the rest of your life. So that sometimes, that can be a thing, you know, blowing through the IRMA brackets for, you know, one to four years, something like that, just biting the bullet and doing that so that you can then experience relief from IRMA for the rest of your life. That's when I talk about strategies, that's usually the most uh, obvious one that, that people, some people can deploy. Some people, it's just the numbers don't work for them. There's just no practical way of doing it. But I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, well, that, uh, that brings us to the end of this Q&A show. Uh, Jim will be back next week with, uh, with us. So we'll do our EDU show and Q&A next week with, uh, with the pair of us. And I'm sure he'll bring back a lot more nuggets of uh, knowledge, little, little treasures that he brings back from the Ed Slot program. So we'll hear all about that uh, next time. We did a little bit of that already with uh, Secure Act issues that came up. But I think he's got a bag of other stuff that he's going to be bringing back with him. So we really appreciate everybody listening. If you want to send in your own questions to the show, still continue to send those into Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. Uh, Make sure in the subject line you indicate that it's a question for the podcast, and we'll do our best to get an answer to you as soon as possible. And everybody take care. We'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. 
Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 